Welcome to Design 30. My name is Jason Bilyeu, and in this podcast, I provide design strategies and tools to improve creativity, innovation, and overall design confidence. Today, we are talking about simplicity. This last week, I released another substack that uh, touched on simplicity and the simplicity of the design of uh, Crocs, which I also did an episode on a few weeks ago. And it that episode kind of led me down this rabbit hole of, of thinking about simple designs and, and what goes into them and why why are simple products things that that still sell and why are simple products things that we can have a tendency to to overlook um, i think sometimes simple comes off as basic or easy or not very innovative or not a cool design sometimes but really when you look into simplicity it's really none of those things. It can be incredibly complicated. It can have a ton of design put into it. So this episode is going to focus on simplicity. I'm going to talk about it in the context of the Substack that I just released. And then I'm also going to talk about it in the context of a fork. So I'm currently reading a book right now called The Evolution of Useful Things by Henry Petrosky. And it's been fascinating. It, it Essentially what he's doing, I'm only about a chapter and a half in, but essentially what he's doing is looking at a lot of these simple household or desk items that we, we interact with every day and going into the history of those and what went into designing them. How did they evolve from a, a design perspective over time? And the first thing he talks about is forks. And I think it's just a perfect example of something that feels so simple, having such uh, a complex history. Um, So really, it's a surface level simplicity. It looks simple on the surface, but as you dive into it, it just keeps getting more and more complex and fascinating. So I want to talk about that. And then at the end of that episode, I think I'll give a few thoughts on this new uh, phenomena that people are calling threads. Uh, Basically, this is uh, Facebook's or Meta's version of Twitter. And so that came out this last week, and I've got a few thoughts I want to share on that. But first, before we get into all of that, remember to please subscribe to the podcast and whatever podcatcher you're using. Uh, If you're enjoying it, please share it with friends, family, coworkers. And then you can also find Design 30 on YouTube where you can subscribe. Uh, Those are all audio versions of the podcast. And then there's also a few, uh, I'll put up some shorts every now and then as well. So if you want even more Design 30 content, that's a good place to find it. And then finally, if you want to read some of the stuff I'm writing, uh, you can find me on Substack. And a common question I've heard is, or people talk about, it's like, well, I'm not on not on Substack, so how am I going to to follow you or read you on Substack? 
And the nice thing about Substack is you don't have to. It really, all it takes is an email. So uh, when you visit my Instagram, there will be a link to my Substack and you can literally just put in your email address and then you you get every post just emailed directly to you. Of course, a lot of the time that will end up in, I think either your spam or your junk mail. So make sure you double check those uh, to make sure it's going to your primary inbox. But if you want to support the podcast, you want to support me, please become or think about becoming a free or a paid subscriber on Substack. And so with that, I want to dive into a little bit of this Substack post that I just released. So I'm just going to read the first couple sentences of this and then give a little bit of my thoughts and maybe uh, maybe this will pique your interest and spur you to go check it out yourself. So it says, simplicity in design is deceiving. To some it may appear lazy and to others a lack of creativity. However, in many ways, simplicity is the pinnacle of design, or at least an impressive accomplishment, and one that does not come without extreme effort and design iteration after iteration. No, simplicity is rarely simple or easy. It requires an expert understanding of the problem you are trying to solve, dedication to an elegant solution, strong resistance to scope creep, and the willpower to mercilessly cut out features. Simple design is not easy or lazy. It is the culmination of saying no to a thousand designs in order to find the one design which efficiently solves the problem or meets the user need. So here, what I'm trying to say and trying to illustrate is when you see a simple design, it is very, very rarely someone just, that was the first thought they had, first idea, they catted it up and hit send, right? It's something that they probably thought about for a long time. They probably came up with, you know, maybe a hundred different ideas in their head before they actually wrote one down or made one in CAD. Uh, And then at that point, they start coming up with a bunch of prototypes, maybe some simple prototypes, maybe some expensive prototypes, and they start putting it in the hands of users. They start testing out themselves. And so it, a lot of these simple designs in no way are the result of laziness or a lack of creativity, but rather they're, they're, they're the opposite in a lot of ways. They're the result of trying something a thousand times. They're the result of saying no to all these other ideas to get to that one idea, which actually performs and functions the best. And this was illustrated fairly well by the the design of Crocs that I talked about a few episodes ago where it's such, and from the outside, it looks like this really simple uh, design, looks really simple compared to other shoes, doesn't have all the stitching and different components, um, but it's it's shown that people enjoy that simplicity. It's something that's actually attractive to people because in certain contexts, that's what you want. You don't want uh, to have to think about all the different aspects that go into picking another kind of shoe. For example, when the pandemic hit and people didn't necessarily care as much about what they look like, the croc was perfect. You just slip it on, it was comfortable, uh, it was easy to use, you could wear it all over, you could wear it if you were playing outside in the yard, you could just wear it around the house, kind of like slippers. So the simplicity of it had 
a very uh, specific attractiveness, especially in certain situations. And those uh, by no means were the result of laziness or the lack of creativity. Uh, there's a lot of design effort that went into uh, just the design of the material that they're made out of, as well as a lot of effort into the look of them. And in that case, they based a lot of the design off the look of clogs originally. And so it was a pretty unique idea and a pretty unique solution. So that was one very specific example of a simple design that even though it is selling uh, at a pretty high uh, rate right now, the revenue for Crocs that I share, I share it in this post. I may have shared it in that last episode as well. It's significantly, it's much higher than you would guess right now, which is crazy because it is something that I think we tend to overlook due to its simplicity. And something else that we very often tend to overlook due to its simplicity is forks, something that we use every day. And how many of you have actually sat down and thought, you know, I wonder where the design of the fork came from. I wonder how this product evolved over time. And this is one, it's similar, well, it's actually different than a lot of other products that I've talked about, which go through this design cycle. And, you know, maybe you're talking months to a year of iterating and coming up with all these different ideas. The fork, you know, it's been iterated over the course of hundreds of years. So it's a little bit different uh, design cycle than we're used to. And that's why in this book that I had mentioned, The Evolution of Useful Things, he refers to it as evolution because it almost has more of an evolution to it where there's these different pressures on it and the the design of it kind of shifts and shapes itself to uh, what's needed at the time. So I'm just going to go through and actually read uh, a decent chunk of this first chapter of this book. I think it's just, it's really fascinating, really interesting, and I think really uh, does a good job of shedding some light on this idea of simplicity that we're talking about and how simplicity very often does not come from nowhere. It doesn't come from just one random idea. It comes from either a lot of work or a lot of years of evolution and change and figuring out what's the optimal design. So it starts off by saying, delving into the evolution of the knife, fork, and spoon can lead us to a theory of how all things of technology evolve. Exploring the tableware that we use every day and yet know so little about provides a good starting point for a consideration of the interrelated natures of invention, innovation, design, and engineering as we are likely to find. So right here, he's saying a lot of what I was saying before. There's just looking at these simple things like the knife and the fork and the spoon and just exploring where these things came from because so many of us know very, very little about it. But exploring where they came from and how they, they came to take the form that they currently have this will shed a ton of light on just invention and innovation and design, all of these things in general. It's a fascinating history, and I'm, I'm really excited to read more of this book. I think there's a very, very high probability that more episodes of the podcast will be coming uh, from this book and ideas I get from this book. So again, it's called The Evolution of Useful Things. 
go check it out. Uh, if you're into engineering design or just curious about where something as simple as the paperclip came from. So he continues in this book. He says, eating a meal with two knives might seem to have been doubly crude and dangerous, but in its time, it was thought of the height of refinement. For the most formal dining in the Middle Ages, a knife was grasped in each hand. For a right-handed person, the knife in the left hand held the meat steady, while the knife in the excuse me, the knife in the left hand held the meat steady while the knife in the right hand sliced off an appropriately sized piece. This piece was then speared and conveyed to the mouth on the knife's tip. Eating with two knives represented a distinct advance in table manners, and the adept diner must have manipulated a pair of knives as readily as we do a knife and fork today. By using one knife to steady the roast in the middle of the table, while the other knife cut off a slice, the diners could help themselves without touching the common food. But a sharp pointed knife is not a very good holding device, as we can easily learn by trying to eat a T-bone with a steak knife in each hand. So here he's saying that using two knives was actually a pretty big advancement because it helped people uh, not have to touch the food with their hands, which of course for what, tens or hundreds of thousands of years, that's exactly how people were eating the food. They were ripping it off of their hands, maybe spearing it with a stick, things like that. But moving to, you know, this slightly more developed culture, people started using two knives. Uh, but then he goes on to say, if the holding knife is to press a stick against the plate, we must use some effort to keep it in place. And this can become tiring. If the holding knife is to spear the steak, we will soon find it rotating in place what, like a wheel on an axle. As a result, using the fingers to steady food being cut was not uncommon. Frustrations with knives, especially in their shortcomings in holding meat steady for cutting, led to the development of the fork. While ceremonial forks were known to the Greeks and Romans, they apparently had no names for the table forks, or at least did not use them in their writings. Greek cooks did have a flesh fork to take meat from a boiling pot, and this kitchen utensil had a resemblance to the hand and was used to prevent the fingers from being scalded. Ancient fork-like tools also include the likes of hay forks and Neptune's trident, but forks are not assumed or are but forks are assumed not to have been used for dining in ancient times. The first utilitarian fork had two prongs or tines and were employed principally in the kitchen and for carving and serving. Not until the 17th century did the fork appear in England. And isn't that crazy? Like, I thought that was wild. Here's something that we take for granted, use every day, and it feels like a really simple design. People have probably used them for thousands of years, is what you would guess. But here, he says, it wasn't until the 17th century that they started using the fork in England. And he talks about how earlier uh, forks were used in certain, a few different areas. Um, he says the inventory of Charles V of France, who reigned from 1364 to 1380, had silver and gold forks uh, listed on his uh, uh, list of things that he owned. But they were really only used for carrying food that could stain your fingers, things like that. So they weren't used consistently. Uh, and then he talks about how there's table forks for conveying a variety of foods to the mouth. 
moved westward to France with Catherine de Medicius, not sure if I'm saying that right, in 1533, and when she married the future king of Henry II. But the fork was thought to be an affection, and those who lost half their food as it was lifted from plate to mouth were ridiculed. It took a while for the new implement to gain widespread use among the French. So here's something that it took a long time. It was used in small areas, different areas around Europe, uh, probably popped up in a few other areas around the world, but it really didn't gain prominence uh, until uh, it looks like the 17th century. Obviously, in other parts of the world, like uh, China, they're using chopsticks, which he actually dives into uh, the evolution of chopsticks a little bit in this this chapter as well. Um, but it's crazy that something so simple as a fork took so long to uh, to be something that was commonly used. I mean, people, he talks about, use their fingers for a long time, and then they use knives for a long time. And eventually, someone took what they used in the kitchen a lot, but they didn't like to use the same utensils from the kitchen in the uh, at the table that was considered bad manners. So it took a while for a unique a unique uh, table version of a fork to actually take hold. He goes on to mention that the carving fork, which is used for carving the meat in the kitchen, functions as it was intended, leaving little to be desired. And so it has remained essentially unchanged since antiquity. And I think we've all experienced this. It's that two-tined fork that you use to cut or carve your turkey. Um, Very simple. Those, like he says, have not really changed much over the years. But But the same is not true of the table fork. As the fork grew in popularity, its form evolved for its shortcomings became evident. The earliest table forks, which were modeled after kitchen carving forks, had two straight and longish tines that had developed a serve developed to serve the principal function of holding large pieces of meat. The longer the tines, the more securely something like a roast could be held. Of course, but longish tines are unnecessary at the dining table. Furthermore, fashion and style dictated that tableware looked different from kitchenware. And so since the 17th century, the tines of table forks have been considerably shorter and thinner than those of carving forks. So it's interesting here you see how just culture plays a role in the design of the fork um, where these two-tined forks they used in the kitchen worked pretty well for carving meat and turkey and roast and that kind of thing. But for some reason, they felt that kitchenware needed to be different than what was used uh, on the table, different than their tableware. And so that led to a lot more design iterations of the of your normal table fork he goes on again to say there have been five and six tined forks but four appears to be the optimum four tines provide a relatively broad surface and yet do not feel too wide in the mouth nor does a four tined fork have so many tines that it resembles a comb or functions like one when being pressed into the meat so here it's interesting to see that that they did try uh, forks with uh, five tines and six tines. And today you'll see some with three tines and those ones work decently well. But it was interesting how four wasn't just a random number. It's actually the number that uh, it makes the most sense in a lot of ways. The size uh, fits well into the average person's mouth. You uh, don't have the tines being too thick. 
and bulky, you also don't have the tines being too thin and wanting to bend or or break off when you're trying to eat off them. So the four tines isn't just a random number that was chosen. It was actually a design iteration that came about because it it solved the problem most effectively. And again, that's why he compares this to evolution because it's almost like there's this pressure, there's this need of being able to eat food without getting it on your fingers and to be able to spear things and hold them down when you're cutting them. And the most efficient way to solve this problem, even though a lot of iterations were tried, the most efficient way to solve it was with a four-tined fork. And so who knew that there was so much history that you could go into behind the design of a fork? I mean, it's much more complicated than I think most of us would have guessed. And it's fascinating in this book, he shows some pictures of, of just the of knives and fork sets over the years. In one of them, you can see the knives are pointy as it's going through the years. And this is when he talks about people use two knives. And so you would basically just have two pointy knives to hold your meat down and to cut it. But as soon as the fork is introduced, this really interesting change happens in your knives. And all of a sudden this point starts going away and you start getting these rounded, uh, more butter knife looking uh, designs cropping up. And that's because it was considered more appropriate as the sharp pointed knife had more of an, uh, an intimidating look to it. And if you're trying to put your, your visitors, your fellow diners at ease, it's better not to have these intimidating pointing knives uh, scattered about the table. He also talks about in some cultures, you if you set your knife down, you would want to set the blade pointing towards you because if the blade was pointing out towards the person next to you, that could be considered a threat. And then in other cultures, if you were eating with one hand, your other empty hand, you know, it feels natural to put it down under the table, but that also was considered a threat because people wouldn't know what you were holding on the table. They didn't know if you had a weapon down there. So to be, uh, to have good manners in that culture, you had to put your hand out on the table and keep it there. So it's just fascinating thinking through how, how we eat and how our table manners have evolved over time. And, and a fork plays a huge role in that. And again, it's, it's something that is so simple and easy to overlook, but really there's so much that has gone into it. And all of these different designs have been tried and it's it's something that even though it is simple it wasn't thought of right away people haven't been using table forks for thousands and thousands of years so i thought that was just a, a perfect example of this concept that i talk about a lot with simplicity and how simplicity is never easy and it's something that we very often overlook and don't necessarily appreciate all of the time and energy and effort that goes into creating a de design that is truly simple. And so with that, I'm going to transition here now to talking about this new app, which I'm sure you've all heard of at this point, and it's called Threads. So this is, it's called an Instagram app, but essentially it's Twitter from Meta, which is the parent company of Facebook and Instagram. And it's been pretty interesting. I got on it earlier this last earlier last week. And it's been an interesting experience. Um, my first 
thought about it was, wow, this looks incredibly similar to Twitter. Um, if any of you have used both, there is a very, very strong simil similarity between the two. So that will be interesting. I know there's currently some lawsuits uh, coming from Elon Musk at Twitter about this. So it'll be interesting to see how that all gets worked out. Um, but it does have, I mean, it feels very, very similar to Twitter. But at the same time, I think it's, I totally understand why uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg at Meta would, would want to do this. Um, it really is, again, it's, almost like a simplified version of Instagram in a way, because Instagram, you have to uh, curate all of your images and you have to create images and whether it's a photo you take or it's something like you've actually graphically designed, like Instagram can take a lot of time to make posts look good, to make your page look good. Like it, it's not simple to do it well, it, but no way is it simple to do it well. But the nice thing about threads is it really is very simple. You're just posting your thoughts. You can post pictures too if you want to, but really you can just type out whatever you're thinking about that day or whatever you're thinking about that hour. You can read what other people are thinking about and give your thoughts real quick. It's so much faster and so much more simple, I would say, than Instagram in a lot of ways, which is something actually that I really kind of drew me into Twitter was just... I really like communicating and thinking more uh, in writing. And that's something that you can't do as much on something like Instagram. I mean, obviously you can comment, but I feel like people don't read the comments quite as much on Instagram. It really is more about the images and the stories and things like that. Whereas Twitter is much more about what you're writing and what you're thinking. And so I think that's where Threads has a niche here. It's pulling all of these people from Instagram in introducing them to this idea of Twitter in a lot of ways of just communicating a lot more solely based on thoughts and what you want to write and what, and commenting other people's uh, on other people's thoughts, essentially. Um, one other thing I've noticed about threads is it seems to be a little less serious than Twitter, at least at this point, uh, scrolling through a lot of the posts, it's, it's a little bit more about just random things, which is kind of fun. And I think why it is, or at least this last week, it has really taken off. There's a different vibe, a different feeling to the app than Twitter. Um, so it's going to be really fascinating to see uh, how this all plays out over the next couple months to maybe a couple of years. Uh, I'm really curious to see how Twitter responds in design and what they add to the app, what they take away from the app. Maybe they simplify it again. Um, but I know Twitter has really been going for trying to create a space specifically for creators. And I think that this might force them to lean into that even a little bit more. Uh, perhaps think through their business model a little differently of, of having people pay to be verified. I don't know. It's, it's going to be it's going to be a really interesting transition and, and kind of a fun thing to watch. I mean, you have these, uh, these really smart, uh, people in Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and just watching kind of this, this interplay between the two is going to be fascinating and who responds with what kind of design and how are those designs received uh, by the public. So I'm really fascinated to see how that all works out. Um, and that being said, 
I am on threads. So design 30 is on threads. If you're on there, you should give me a follow and I will give you a follow back. Perhaps if you're uh, creating awesome things and it makes sense to connect. So yeah, uh, make sure to look up design 30 there. And as I mentioned before, uh, please, if you are enjoying the podcast, please share it. That's probably the best way you can support it. Uh, you can also become a paid or a free subscriber to the Design 30 Substack, which is also an awesome way to support the podcast. And with that, I will let this episode come to a close. As always, remember, design more, despair less. Thanks for listening. <laughs>